Chapter 6 Intelligentsia and Intellectuals Under colonialism, an intelligentsia, educated and Western ideology, emerged and provided a link between the colonial power and the masses. It was drawn, for the most part, from the families of chiefs and the moneyed sections of the population. The growth of the intelligentsia was limited to the minimum needed for the functioning of the colonial administration. It became socially alienated, an elite susceptible both to left and right opportunism. In Africa, as in Europe and elsewhere, education largely determines class. As literacy increases, tribal and ethnic allegiances weakened, and class divisions sharpened. There is what may be described as an esprit de corps, particularly among those who have traveled abroad for their education. They become alienated from tribal and village roots, and, in general, their aims are political power, social position, and professional status. Even today, when many independent states have built excellent schools, colleges, and universities, Thousands of Africans prefer to study abroad. There are at present some 10,000 African students in France, 10,000 in Britain, and 2,000 in the USA. In areas of Africa which were once ruled by the British, English-type public schools were introduced during the colonial period. In Ghana, Adisadel, Mansipim, and Akamoda, are typical examples. In these schools, and in similar schools built throughout British colonies in Africa, curriculum, discipline, and sports were as close imitations as possible of those operating in English public schools. The object was to train up a Western-oriented political elite committed to the attitudes and ideology of capitalism and bourgeois society. In Britain, the English class system is largely based on education. The 3% products of English public schools are still considered by many to be the country's natural rulers. That is, those best qualified to rule both by birth and education. For in Britain, the educational structure is inseparable from the political and social framework. While only 6% of the population attends public schools, and only 5% go to university, the public schools provide 60% of the nation's company directors, 70% of conservative members of parliament, and 50% of those appointed to royal commissions and public inquiries. In other words, the small minority of products of exclusive educational establishments occupy the large majority of top positions in the economic and political life of the country. This irrational and outdated system still continues to operate in spite of apparent efforts to widen and popularize educational opportunities. It has not yet been seriously challenged by the growing importance of the experts or technocrats, most of them educated in grammar and comprehensive schools nor has it shown any significant weakening in the face of growing political pressure from below. In fact, if they could afford it, the majority of working-class parents would send their children to public schools 
because of the unique opportunities they provide for entry into top positions in society. The products of English public schools have their counterparts in the British ex-colonial territories. There are the bourgeois establishment figures who try to be more British than the British, and who imitate the dress, manners, and even the voices of the British public school and Oxford elite. The colonialist aim in fostering the growth of an African intelligentsia is to form local cadres called upon to become our assistants in all fields and to ensure the development of a carefully selected elite. This, to them, is a political and economic necessity. And how do they do it? We pick our pupils primarily from among the children of chiefs and aristocrats. The prestige due to origin should be backed up by respect which possession of knowledge evokes. In 1953, before Ghana's independence, out of a total of 208 students at the university college, 12% of the families of students had an income of over 600 pounds a year, 38% between 250 and 600 pounds, and 50% about 250 pounds. The significance of these figures is seen when it is realized that it was only in 1962, after vigorous efforts in the economic field, that it was possible to get an average annual income per head, the population, up to approximately 94 pounds. Unlike the British and the French, the Belgians were against allowing the growth of an intelligentsia. No elite, no trouble, appeared to be their motto. The results of such a policy were clearly seen in the Congo, for example, in 1960, when there is scarcely a qualified Congolese in the country to run the newly independent state, to officer the army and police, or to fill the many administrative and technical posts left by the departing colonialists. The intelligentsia always leads the nationalist movement in its early stages. It aspires to replace the colonial power, but not to bring about a radical transformation of society. The object is to control the system rather than to change it, since the intelligentsia tends, as a whole, to be bourgeois-minded and against revolutionary socialist transformation. The cohesiveness of the intelligentsia before independence disappears once independence is achieved. It divides roughly into three main groups. First, there are those who support the new privileged indigenous class, the bureaucratic, political, and business bourgeoisie, who are the open allies of imperialism and neocolonialism. These members of the intelligentsia produce the ideologists of anti-socialism and anti-communism and of capitalist political and economic values and concepts. Secondly, there are those who advocate a non-capitalist road of economic development, a mixed economy. For the less industrialized areas of the world, as a phase in the progress towards socialism, this concept, if misunderstood and misapplied, can probably be more dangerous to the socialist revolutionary cause in Africa than the former open pro-capitalism since it may seem to promote socialism, whereas, in fact, it may retard the process. History has proved, and is proving, that a non-capitalist road, 
unless it is treated as a very temporary phase in the progress towards socialism, positively hinders its growth. By allowing capitalism and private enterprise to exist in a state committed to socialism, the seeds of a reactionary seizure of power may be sown. The private sector of the economy continually tries to expand beyond the limits within which it, beyond the limits within which it is confined, and works ceaselessly to curb and undermine the socialist policies of the socialist-oriented government. Eventually, more often than not, if all else fails, it succeeds, with the help of neocolonialists, in organizing a reactionary coup d'état to oust the socialist-oriented government. The third section of intelligentsia to emerge after independence consists of the revolutionary intellectuals, those who provide the impetus and leadership of the worker-peasant struggle for all-out socialism. It is from among this section that the genuine intellectuals of the African Revolution are to be found. Very often, they are minority products of colonial educational establishments who reacted strongly against its brainwashing processes and who became genuine socialists and African nationalist revolutionaries. It is the task of this third section of the intelligentsia to enunciate and promulgate African revolutionary socialist objectives and to expose and refute the deluge of capitalist propaganda and bogus concepts and theories poured out by the imperialist, neocolonialist, and indigenous reactionary mass communication media. Under conditions of capitalism and neocolonialism, the majority of students, teachers, university staff, and others coming under the broad category of intellectuals are an elite within the bourgeoisie and can become a revolutionary or a counter-revolutionary force for political action. Before independence, many of them become leaders of the nationalist revolution. After independence, they tend to split up. Those who helped in the nationalist revolutionary struggle take part in the government and are oriented either to the party nouveau riches or to the socialist revolutionaries. The others join the political opposition or become apolitical or advocate middle-of-the-road policies. Some become dishonest intellectuals. They see the irrationality of capitalism but enjoy its benefits and way of life and for their own selfish reasons are prepared to prostitute themselves and become agents and supporters of privilege and reaction. In general, intellectuals with working-class origins tend to be more radical than those from the privileged sectors of society. But intellectuals are probably the least cohesive or homogeneous of elites. Most of the intellectuals in the USA, Britain, and in Western Europe belong to the right. Similarly, the aspirations of the majority of Africa's intellectuals are characteristic of the middle class. They seek power, prestige, wealth, and social position for themselves and their families. Many of those from working-class families aspire to middle-class status, shrinking from manual work and becoming completely alienated from their class and social origins. Where socialist revolutionary intellectuals have become part of genuinely progressive administrations in Africa, it has usually been through the adoption of Marxism as a political creed, 
and the formation of communist parties or similar organizations, which bring them into constant close contact with workers and peasants. Intelligentsia and intellectuals, if they are to play a part in the African Revolution, must become conscious of the class struggle in Africa and align themselves with the oppressed masses. This involves the difficult, but not impossible, task of cutting themselves free from bourgeois attitudes and ideologies imbibed as a result of colonialist education and propaganda. The ideology of the African Revolution links the class struggle of African workers and peasants with world socialist revolutionary movements and with international socialism. It emerged during the national liberation struggle, and it continues to mature in the fight to complete the liberation of the continent, to achieve political unification, and to effect a socialist transformation of African society. It is unique. It has developed within the concrete situation of the African revolution, is a product of the African personality, and at the same time is based on the principles of scientific socialism.